Hello, American government and civics. Welcome to your review for the uh, legislative branch and political participation. So you can find the review on our Google Classroom. Um, if you want to have your copy out, remember this is going to be extra credit. So if you fill this out as we go through it, um, that might be good. Um, <clears throat> the test is Tuesday, March 7th. It is, uh, we'll do test corrections on Wednesday or Thursday whenever I see y'all because of the block schedule. And uh, yeah, let's get rolling. All right, so first up, there are quite a few questions on the kind of the differences between the House and the Senate. There are some specific questions about, hey, the House does this or the Senate does this, but there are some comparison questions. So uh, be sure you know, you know, the requirements and, and what goes on uh, in the House and the Senate and things like that. So first off, uh, the age. So remember, they are different. The House is 25 years old. The Senate is 30. So uh, in order to be a House member, you're going to be 25, so y'all are about seven years away. Uh, and to get into the Senate, you got to be 30, so y'all are 12 years away. Keep me in mind as uh, someone on your staff when you run for the House or the Senate. Uh, residency, you have to reside in the state. So you have to live in the state that you're going to run in. You have to live there for a year. So you can't just say, hey, I'm going to go run in Alabama and not have lived there for a year. You have to establish residency. Um, there is no requirement to live in the district of the house. So remember the house is based on population and it's based on the districts. Remember Georgia has 14 of them. Uh, there's no requirement that you have to live in the, the district that you're going to run in, but it is a very, very smart idea to live in the district. Um, it can be used against you if you're not from there. Uh, the citizenship. So on the house side, you have to have been a citizen for seven years. So you don't have to be natural born like you'll, have to be for the presidency. Um, you have to have been a citizen, citizen for seven years on the Senate side. Same deal, except for it's nine years uh, a citizen. The term length. Uh, the House, you have two years. So two years is your term. In the Senate, it is six years. So a little bit longer, a little more time uh, than on the House side. The limits. Now, don't get this confused. The term length and term limits. They're two different things. Term length is how long you serve per session for the House. Once again, it's two years for the Senate. It is six. The term limit, this means how many times can you run for reelection? And at the present moment, there is no limit on how often you can be a House member or a senator. So if you were to get elected at 25 years old, you could run and win a reelection until you're 75. That'd be 50 years uh, serving in the House of Representatives. You could do that. Same thing for the Senate. You could be there uh, as long as you're getting reelected. So there are no term limits. Uh, I think the longest serving senator I think we saw was uh, 48 years at the moment. That's a long time to be in the Senate. Uh, so they they uh, you can serve there for, for a long time. You can make a career out of it. Now, I personally don't think you should, but uh, you can. Uh, all right, the seats. So on the House, there's 435. Remember, that was established by law. So uh, there are 435 seats, and they divvy those seats up per state by population. So there's a formula that they put in, and uh, it comes from the census data that they do every 10 years. And so a state's representation on the House side is going to be based on those population numbers. At the present moment, Georgia has 14 seats. That means our population um, is, is pretty, uh, I'd say we're average. We're not... Uh, too big. We're not too small. Um, and so we're, we're kind of right in the middle. 
uh, there's a whole bunch of states that have between probably 14 and 20 uh, representatives. You know, the large states, uh, California, I think is the biggest with 50 something. Uh, Texas has, I think, 38 now or stuff like that. Uh, so those are some of the largest. So we're, we're pretty pretty much right in the, the range there of most of the states. Uh, the House, I mean, excuse me, the Senate has 100. That's two per, per state. Not going to change, not going to be adjusted. Uh, two per state. So there will always be 100 members of the Senate. For now, there's 435 members of the House. I think they should update the law and increase the number because our population has increased so much since the law was written, but uh, no one's asking me. How seats are determined. So the Senate side is pretty easy. Remember, that's just equal. Every state has the two. On the House side, it's by population. So the larger your state is, uh, the more people you have in the House. So once again, Georgia has 14 states like New York, Texas, California, but large populations, they have more people. Uh, the duties, uh, so their main job is to, to legislate, okay, so to make the laws and rules and policies and things like that that we, that the citizens uh, follow. You know, they're supposed to help us as constituents. Um, I know that if, like for y'all, students, if you're applying to one of the military academies, you might have to get a letter of recommendation from your house member. You know, so stuff like that, that would be considered casework where they're going to help us as constituents personally, uh, or maybe as a group or something like that. Uh, but most of their, most of their work probably takes place uh, in, in Congress, uh, in the House or the Senate, wherever they're at, uh, working, you know, in the committees on bills and laws, working on oversight, which is where they will question uh, different activities of, of the bureaucracy and things like that. All right. So that is the differences. Now, on the test, once again, there are some 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 questions where you just have to pick out kind of that kind of stuff that's there. Uh, there's also some questions that are like scenario based. So, hey, this person wants to run for the Senate in Georgia. What would disqualify them and things like that? So just keep it in mind. There are some questions you have to think a little bit about. All right. Next up is the Senate filibusters and then the cloture. So the filibuster, this is a tool of the Senate only. That's why it says Senate filibusters. So please never think that there is a House filibuster. There is no such thing as a House filibuster. There is only Senate filibusters. The filibuster is basically the unlimited debate rule kicking in. All right. So on the Senate side, there are no rules as to how long the debate for a, on a bill can take place. If they wanted to, they could debate the whole session. So one person can get up there and talk 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 and talk. There are stories of people reading the phone book. There are stories of people singing lullabies to their kids on the phone. That was pretty recent. Uh, there's actually video footage of that one. Uh, I don't know how true it is. I read this story. I'm not sure if it's accurate or not. But some person went to the door of the Senate, stood behind the door while still speaking to the full Senate. To the Senate. I don't know if it was a full Senate or not. Uh, and used the restroom as one of their aides held a cup for them to go to the bathroom in because they couldn't give up their time. I don't know if that's true or not, but people go to extremes to filibuster. Now, what is the point of a filibuster? Well, you know, you're going to hear sometimes, hey, it's to kill a bill. The actual goal is to just delay action as long as you can. What you need to remember is that one bill 
is pretty minuscule in the grand scheme, grand scheme of things when you're talking about the Senate and their operating procedure. They have hundreds of bills they got to get to each session, and they are on a time crunch because they have to get stuff done within the session. And so if you are delaying action on everything else behind the bill, then you're, you're creating a problem. Now, this is a tool of the minority party. Okay. So on the Senate side right now, the Republicans are the minority. So they're going to try and delay action on this, on a bill that the, the majority party, the Democrats really want. And what they're trying to do is hey, we got to get other stuff done too. We can't spend all this time on this bill. And so the goal is to hopefully get the majority party to eventually say, okay, we'll make some changes. Or maybe you know, just scrap the bill altogether. It just depends on what, you know, what the goal is. But you're really trying to delay the action and put pressure on the majority party. Well, you got all this other stuff you got to get done too. If you waste too much time on this one bill, you're never going to get everything done. And so, you know, it's a race against time. Uh, you can end a filibuster with a cloture vote. So you see, hopefully you see it on your, your study guide there, the cloture. Uh, this is the vote to end debate. So if I am sitting there in the Senate, I'm like, my God, this person's been talking forever and I just want them to stop. I can make a cloture motion. All right. A cloture motion just means, hey, I think we should end debate. I don't think there should be any more talking. We've talked enough about this bill. Let's vote on it now. So if three fifths of the, the Senate says yes, that's 60, okay, uh, then we end debate and we would just have our vote. So we would we'd be finished talking, all right? So that's the cloture vote, and that's how you end a filibuster. Uh, the 60 is a tough number to come by. Uh, if you have the, the 60, you have a supermajority, and you basically can do whatever you want to in the Senate because then there's really no, no uh, tools that the minority can use. All right, Citizen United versus FEC. So the one court case for this unit you got to know, uh, this is a case that started because Citizens United was an interest group and they were taking uh, political donations from businesses, corporations, groups like that. And they had made a movie about Hillary Clinton. Now, this is back in 2008 when she was running against uh, Barack Obama in the Democratic primaries. And so they were all set to release this full length movie. That's a documentary movie, but it was a, a full length, you know, hour and a half, two hour movie. I don't know the exact time uh, about Hillary. 30 days before the primaries. Well, campaign law, McCain-Feingold Act, by uh, Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act of 2002, I think it is, says you can't take money from businesses, corporations, and then release this kind of propaganda 30 days out of a primary or an election. <clears throat> so Citizens United preemptively tries to get a, an injunction to stop the FEC from stopping them. Courts say no. All right. Uh, it eventually goes to the Supreme Court. And here's where you need to remember. So if you've been trying to, to remember, this is the key point. The Supreme Court is going to say that political campaign donations is tied to free speech. All right. And businesses or corporations, if you remember from your econ days, they are legal individuals. They have free speech. So therefore, campaign donations cannot be regulated like that. And so campaign money was tied to free speech. So if all that, I, I know I went into a little bit more detail than I probably needed to there. But the thing to remember is what the FE, uh, the <clears throat> Supreme Court said, and that is the fact that campaign money is now tied to free speech. All right, lobbyists and their tools. So lobbyists, first off, these are individuals 
that work in politics that aren't politicians. Typically, lobbyists are going to be former politicians. You don't have to be. You can be a, a non-politician and be a lobbyist. I have a friend uh, in Florida who was a lobbyist. Uh, she was never in politics. She worked for a politician, but was never directly in politics. Anyways, um, lobbyists are going to be hired by interest groups, by corporations, by religious groups, by whoever you can think of. We could hire lobbyists if we wanted to, okay, if we could afford them. Uh, and basically what they're going to do is they are, are going to act on behalf of whoever has hired them. So if the uh, NRA hires a lobbyist, they're going to go and they're going to speak to Congress people about bills that pertain to the NRA. And they're going to say, hey, the NRA feels this way. We would like for you to, to do this, this, and this with this bill. We think you should kill this bill because it's anti-gun. We think you should support this bill because it's pro-gun. We would like to see these changes made here, these changes here, so on and so forth. All right. Uh, so basically, they are working on behalf of whoever has hired them and speaking to Congress people to try and get stuff done <clears throat> to the bills and laws and policies that are on the table. All right. Uh, their biggest tool, their greatest tool, is the fact that they have political donations behind them. So they can raise money through whoever has hired them and make donations, contributions to the politicians' uh, campaigns. Now, it sounds super shady, and it used to be super shady. All right. It sounds like we're just bribing people. But here's the thing to remember. Um, interest groups, businesses, they're not giving money to individuals who aren't already leaning their way. So the NRA, the National Rifle Association, is not giving a bunch of money to anti-gun congresspeople. It's just not happening. Okay. There are they're giving money to people that were already sympathetic or had you know ideas and thoughts that went along with what that interest group, that business believes in. All right. Uh, the the money just kind of ensures maybe might be the way to say it, uh, a seat at the table. So, you know, when a bill comes up for debate and uh, this interest group has given money and now their lobbyist is going to get an ear to go talk to. All right. Uh, but once, it does sound shady. Uh, and I can't deny that. Uh, so a good lobbyist is going to take detailed records, keep note of all their meetings and keep everything on the up and up. All right. Uh, so that that whole man, this is, you know, thousand dollar handshake, ten thousand dollar handshake, whatever it might be, uh, is a coming true. All right, guys, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. So we just got done talking about the lobbyists and their tools, and now we're picking up with congressional checks on the president. So what does Congress have on the president? So the first thing there is the veto override. And a veto override. So the president has said, no, this law is no good. I am not going to sign it. I am going to deny it. They veto it. If Congress feels stronger, strongly enough about something, they can override a veto with a two-thirds vote. Now, it's two-thirds of both sides. So the House and the Senate 
They might not look together, but two-thirds of 535, that's a big number. I think it's like 460-something, all right? That's a lot of people that have to say yes to override this veto. <clears throat> so it doesn't happen as often as we think. Now, it is tied to presidential popularity. Typically, if a president is super popular, the veto is not going to be overridden because Congress people then don't want to upset the people that support the president. And when I say people, I mean constituents. Now, if a president is super unpopular, Congress is more likely to take action against the veto because then there's no repercussions. Hey, the people don't like this person anyways, so if we override this veto, we're okay. Declare war. Now, make note that that is a Senate, or excuse me, I'm very sorry. I was thinking of something else. I was thinking of the consent and advice down at the bottom. Declare war is something that both House and Senate has to do. The president cannot declare war. So please don't think that, oh, hey, the president can, can do what they want to. They can't. They can do some things. They can commit troops and, and things like that, but they have to let Congress know within 48 hours. Congress gets to make the ultimate decision on if the troops are going to stay or not. But the declare war, uh, it takes full vote from Congress. Now, um, if you there's a movie, Pearl Harbor. It's about a, a, the actual event of Pearl Harbor. But if you've ever seen this movie, uh, it shows FDR after Pearl Harbor. He had to call Congress back from their winter break uh, to vote on an act of, of war. And so that's that's something that happens. Uh, impeachment, remember, this is a two-part process. You need to know both parts. The House is the one that's going to levy the charges. So uh, the president or whatever public official has done something wrong, and the House decides, you know what, that's an impeachable offense. There are three things that can get a president impeached. Uh, treason, bribery, and then high crimes and misdemeanors. High crimes and misdemeanors are the broad one. That could be anything. It's whatever the House thinks is a high crime and misdemeanor. So uh, the president has jaywalked. I, as a House member, think that's an impeachable offense. That's high crime and misdemeanor. I write up articles of impeachment detailing this is the charges I levy against the president. The Speaker of the House can make a decision on whether we're going to pursue that. If the Speaker of the House said yes, that is an impeachable offense. Um, and wanted to let the full House vote, then we go to vote, and a simple majority gets the president impeached. The Senate then hears the trial. So the Senate will act as the, the jury um, in this trial, and they will make a decision. You need two-thirds of the Senate, so 67, uh, to find the president guilty. It's never happened. So it, it, it does not happen all that often. But the House will do the impeachment the Senate will decide whether the president stays or goes. Uh, funds, so revenue and things like that starts on the House side. Now, the full Senate will eventually, I mean, excuse me, the full Congress will eventually vote on stuff, but revenue bills, tax increases, things like that are supposed to start on the House side because they're supposed to be closer to us, the citizens, and know more what we need. On the, uh, the consent and advice piece, that is the Senate only. The Senate provides consent and advice. And so that means that when the president appoints someone to a position uh, like a Supreme Court justice, a federal judge, uh, an ambassadorship, things like that, the Senate has to approve it. Treaties, the Senate has to approve those. So if the president goes out and makes a treaty, the Senate has to approve it. Think back to World War I, the Treaty of Versailles. Wilson's 14 points got signed by the European powers that ended World War I. Wilson brings it back 
and says, hey, Senate, I'd like for you to sign this. And the Senate refused. Henry Cabot Lodge said, no, we're not going to sign that thing because of the 14th point in the League of Nations. And so we had to sign a separate agreement with, with Germany eventually because the Senate refused to sign that thing. All right. Uh, so that is the Senate side and their advice and consent. All right. How a bill becomes a law. So you did an assignment on this where you detailed the steps of how a bill becomes a law into a game board. So a couple things to remember. I'm not going to go through every step on this podcast. Uh, first off, remember that any congressperson on either side, the House or the Senate, can introduce a bill. So if I'm the House or if I'm a member of the House, I can introduce a bill. H.R. 1. We're going to have an hour lunch guaranteed in schools for students and teachers. There's my bill. So it's introduced. It, it would then go to a committee. All right, so it then goes to a committee. Remember the committees, we're going to talk about those in just a second, but the committees, that's where all the work takes place. That's where the bills are debated, talked about, discussed. Uh, experts come in and weigh in on them. And all that kind of stuff. We can make changes. Maybe we find that an hour is too long in this committee. Let's go with 45 minutes. That sounds better. They can make changes like that. Okay. Uh, once the committee has finalized their changes, they vote on it and they report it to the, the full house. The rules committee makes their recommendation and then it goes for debate, then vote. Once it passes the house, it has to go to the Senate and starts all over the Senate could pass an entirely different bill than what we send over. At that point, we have to come together, House and the Senate, with a conference committee and make changes and come to an agreement on what the differences, how we can rectify the differences. Once we've done that, it then goes to the Senate. I mean, excuse me, it goes to the president for signature. So it's a, it's a, it's a lot more than that, obviously. There's a long process, but, you know, this is a podcast where you can't see anything and you're just listening. And so... Um, trying to go into detail about everything. Just, I don't know if it, it's not the best medium for a discussion on that. But once again, it's introduced, goes to committee, goes to vote, goes to the other side, goes to committee, goes to vote. If it's the same bill, it goes to the president. If it's different, it gets rectified, then it goes to the president. Okay, that is the short, quick snapshot, snapshot version of how a bill becomes a law. All right, the committees, so you've got four. Um, you got standing, joint, select, and conference. The standing committee, these are the permanent ones. These are the ones that are on the House side and the Senate side. The House has, I think, about 20-something, and the, the Senate, I think, has 18, 19, something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers. It's not really that important, but they're permanent. They're there for, for they'll be there this session. They're there next session. They've been there in the previous sessions. Uh, the Rules Committee on the House side has been there since 1790 or so, okay? So they have lasted... Um, and they are the ones that are kind of uh, genre specific. So you'll have an environmental committee, an armed forces committee, uh, educational committee, so on and so forth. So you have these, <clears throat> and then when a bill is introduced, it goes to whichever committee is the closest to that. Now, some of these committees are huge, and they'll have subcommittees. And so, you know, there's, there's all that kind of stuff, nuances uh, to the committee system. But the standing committees... They're the ones where most of the work takes place because every bill has to go through one of these committees. Whichever uh, whichever topic it, it is on, it has to go to whatever committee is the closest to that topic. And so it gets worked on there. Or it could die there. Don't forget that most bills die in committee. Uh, joint committees. 
So this is a combination committee of the House and the Senate, and they typically are going to report some kind of news. So the 9-11 report, that was a joint committee. They came together to say, hey, this is what we found about 9-11. Select committees happen separately. So House select committees or Senate select committees, they do not combine. The standing committees do not combine. So let me make that clear. Uh, And the select committees are going to do some kind of investigation. So um, the, the January 6th committee, that was um, on the House side, it was only the House, was uh, investigating the January 6th insurrection that stormed the Capitol. That was a select committee. They can come, they can go. Um, They're not permanent. However, they can last several sessions. Now, that committee did not last into this session because the Republicans took control. And so it got dissolved. Uh, but once again, it is an investigative committee, and they will look into something, whatever it might be. Conference committees, we've talked about, those are the ones that are going to um, settle the differences between the House bill and the Senate bill. So I always use spending just because money is usually, usually easy to, to rectify because, hey, we want to spend $100 million. Well, we want to spend $10 million. You just meet in the middle somewhere. You know, I mean, it's not that simple, but hopefully you can visualize it, it being, let's just let's rectify this. Let's make these changes and get this done. Political action committees, PACs. This is a tool that is used to distribute money to campaigns and to spend money on campaigns. So basically, PACs were created because there was limits placed on to campaign contributions. So uh, with some of the campaign reform from the 70s and then again in the early 2000s, there was limitations placed on how much people, corporation, you know, just all the, everybody can donate. And so if I have $10,000 that I want to donate, but I'm limited, I can only donate 5,000 to this candidate, what can I do with my other 5,000? And so PACs were kind of born out of that. So I'll give my 5,000 to the candidate and then I'll give this other 5000 to this political action committee, who will then turn around and give that 5000 to the candidate. So it's just a workaround. Now, they've since been regulated, and they can only donate so much to uh, a candidate. Um, so even though they have maybe thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, they can only donate so much. So they do other campaign jobs, uh, like run commercials, advertisements, and, and put on political rallies, and just things to help the candidate versus spending money to the candidate because they're they're limited and, and regulated on how much they can give. All right, let's take one last break, and when we return, we will finish this thing up. All right, welcome back. Let's wrap this thing up here. <clears throat> so uh, the next thing you have is the leadership, and you got the House and the Senate. So there are some similarities, but there are some differences. So be sure you can you know differentiate between the House and the Senate. Let's start with the House. The House is led by the Speaker of the House. Now, please don't think there is a Speaker of the Senate because there is not such thing as a Speaker of the Senate. Uh, the Speaker of the House, though, they are the most powerful position probably in all of Congress because they they really just run the House. Uh, most things go through this person. Uh, they can decide... Um, you know, for the articles of impeachment, they decide if they're going to pursue a vote or not with those things. Um, they help and contribute to who's on what committee, which is a big deal. Uh, they are the ones that you know, run the sessions. So a lot of things go through this position. Um, and it is something that, you know, 
if you want to be the person in the house, that's the job you want. Uh, it is voted on by um, the house members um, before the session. And right now, our current one is Kevin McCarthy. He took over from Nancy Pelosi, who was in charge when the Democrats were in charge. So it's typically, or not typically, it's going to be from the majority party. Uh, the House also has the majority leader, which is kind of the, I don't want to say the assistant to the speaker, but they work closely with the speaker uh, to make sure that the party is doing what they're supposed to, voting how they're supposed to, uh, and just, you know, being a cohesive, cohesive unit uh, in the part, in the, in the House. And then you have the whips. The whips are the ones that kind of are the go-between between the rank and file members of the, the House. Um, so people that aren't in leadership and the leadership. So if I have a problem, uh, I'm not going to go directly to the speaker. I'm not going to go directly to the, the, the majority leader. I would go to the, the whip and say, hey, this is my problem. Uh, they also round up votes, make sure people are voting the way they're supposed to. Uh, and things like that. Now, the minority party has leadership as well. Uh, they have no equivalent to the speaker. They have the minority leader who really just, you know, kind of tries to keep the party together uh, and make sure they're you know, voting together. And then they have the whips as well, who will do the same things that the majority whips do. Uh, the thing about the, the, the House, the minority party really doesn't have much they can do. There's no filibustering. They really, you know, if, if, they don't want something to pass. They don't have much power uh, because they're not a majority on the, the committees. They're not a majority in the in the House, obviously, because they're not in power. And so there's really not much they can do. Now, on the Senate side, the Senate, you have the, uh, the president of the Senate is the vice president, but they're never there. Okay, so they are never there. Uh, so they don't really run it. So it's left to this pre person called the president pro tempore who will kind of do the day-to-day -day operations, but they don't have as much power as the Speaker of the House. So don't, don't think they have, don't think they're like the Speaker. Then you have the minority and majority leaders. They're the ones that are supposed to work together and make the Senate go. Really, it's left to the majority party leader because they are kind of the ones that have the authority to, to set the agenda because they have the votes to get stuff done. And then you have uh, the whips who do the same thing as the House side. All right, the 17th Amendment, uh, this is the one that gave us the ability to directly elect our senators. It used to be where the state legislatures would pick them. Uh, now with the 17th Amendment back in 19-something, the early 1900s, the 17th Amendment was passed, and we get to vote for our senators. The Necessary and Proper Clause, uh, this is something uh, kind of a callback to Unit 2. But this is the Constitution. And I sometimes call it the elastic clause, but it's what allows Congress to stretch their powers. So as long as they are doing something within the realm of the Constitution, so meaning, hey, the Constitution says that we can do this, uh, we can kind of operate outside of those lines a little bit and get this done. So my favorite example, because I'm a U.S. history person, is the National Bank. Uh, because Congress controls commerce, there's the commerce clause in there. Uh, then they said, hey, we're allowed to create a bank because of the necessary and proper clause. It doesn't say in the Constitution they can create a bank, but because we handle commerce and banks handle commerce, therefore we can create one. The election cycles, really, there's two. got to remember there's the general election, which is the presidential election. It happens every four years. So our next one is 2024. And then you have midterm elections, which are every every two years. Uh, excuse me, uh, 
in the middle of the presidential term. So the 2022 election was a midterm election because Biden was elected in 2020 and he's not up for re-election until 2024, so midterm. Uh, reapportionment, redistricting and gerrymandering. Remember, we looked at those maps. So reapportionment happens every 10 years. So that is, and this is the House only. Okay, there are no Senate districts and things like that. So remember, this is the House only. So every 10 years, the population is counted. And based on those numbers, some states are going to potentially lose seats and some states will gain seats uh, on the House side. This last cycle, uh, Florida gained two, I think it was. Arizona, I think, gained one. Texas gained one. And I think another state, I can't remember which one, might have gained another one. Uh, anyway, so, so they gained. So that means that other states had to lose. So California definitely lost one. Uh, New York lost one. I think Ohio may have lost one. And a couple other states. Uh, so basically the 435, remember, is set. We said that was set by law. So that number doesn't change. However, population shifts and it is going to cause the states to gain and lose seats. And so that's what reapportionment is. It's just messing with that 435 and distributing it as the formula says. Okay. Now, redistricting happens as a result of reapportionment or as a result of population shifts within your state. So if you lose a, a, a district or gain a district, you have to redistrict. All right. There's no way to, to not do that. And I showed you a map of Iowa. Iowa had gone from five districts down to four. They had to redistrict because you can't have, you know, uh, five districts with only four representatives. Just not. You can't do that. So they had to redistrict down to four districts. Uh, the states that gained seats, so Florida, you know, they went from uh, 20, I think it was 27 to 28. So they had to add a district. So they had to go and redraw the lines. Uh, Texas gained the two. So they had to go from uh, you know, and they had to redistrict and add those two districts, the states that lost. So Illinois, Ohio, those places, they had to redistrict down. So they had to contract some districts. Uh, it can also happen just because of population shifts within your state. So Georgia redistricted this last election cycle. Um, they, not they, but because of the, the population shifts within Georgia, we redistricted. Every district is is wants to represent about 800,000 people. That's kind of the goal um, of, of every district is to have that representation. And so because of population shifts, we needed to redistrict. Now, the state legislature is the ones that redistrict, so keep that in mind. Uh, and redistricting can lead to gerrymandering because the, the, the party in charge gets to redraw the lines as they want to. And they can redraw the lines to kind of give themselves an advantage. So it is something that happens. You need to remember it is legal. So don't think the gerrymandering is illegal. Uh, it is legal to gerrymander. However, the lines can be challenged. So the courts can be called in to question the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the lines. And they've done so uh, several times over the last probably 60 years now. They started doing this in the 1960s with a case, um, Baker versus Carr up in uh, Tennessee. But anyways, that's that's not that big of a deal. Uh, all right, so that's gerrymandering. Uh, last two things here, uh, Pledge of Allegiance. Um, you need to remember when the words under God uh, were added, and that was in the 50s, and it was um, as a result of the, the, the Cold War, okay? So uh, that's that's why that's going to happen, and, and we're going to have those those words uh, in our 
Pledge of Allegiance. And then participation in the political process. Uh, remember the number one way any of us is going to participate in politics is by voting. Okay. Um, there's some other ways we might, you might serve on a jury. That's a public service. Um, you also might write or debate someone uh, about issues and problems and, and things like that. That's taking part in politics as well. Okay. But once again, the number one answer is typically going to be voting. All right, guys, that is the review. Remember, this thing is extra credit. Submit it to the Google Classroom, uh, and I'll give some extra credit either on the test if you need it or uh, if you need to be have an NTI replaced or something like that. I'm going to put this wherever it helps you the most. Uh, and if you have questions or concerns, then please shoot me an email uh, or talking points me or whatever you need to do to get me, and I will answer the questions as best I can. Uh, best of luck, and I'll see you in class on Tuesday. All right, guys, take care, and goodbye.